and welcome to another exciting Father's Day version of Class in the Bunker. Uh, and we're recording this on uh, Father's Day, so uh, happy Father's Day to everybody out there. And hoping things are going well for you. Also at the moment, uh, we have a little bit of a thunderstorm going on here, so you might hear some thunder from time to time, and I promise you that's not my special effects people trying to kind of drum up uh, more drama for a certain uh, scripture reading. This is kind of a fun one uh, today. We are This is kind of a momentous occasion because we've spent the last year and a half working through the New Testament and the journeyings of Paul and we're about now to make a change. We've said before that one of the, the wonderful aspects of the class that we've had on Monday mornings and now the expanded virtual class that we have and we're enjoying is the fact that we don't, we're not limited to a set curriculum and a set time that classes have to be done. That gives us much longer periods of time where we're actually able to, to do these classes. So. When we get ready to make a change to a new curriculum, <coughs> it's kind of a big deal uh, because it's taken us a long time to get here. So today is a brand new class that we're beginning, uh, and it's and we're calling it the Promise Promises of the Fathers. All the way through the teachings of Paul, he kept talking about the promises that were made to Israel and to uh, the rest of the world through Israel. Uh, as as God's light to them. Uh, and so it's important, I think, that we now spend the next little while looking at the promises and covenants that God has actually made uh, to people. Now, as we look at this, I came across a quote, and I, I, I put it on my Facebook page, and so some of you have seen this, but pretty powerful. And it's amazing since it actually goes back to 1906 uh, to Elder B.H. Roberts. And here's what he said in looking at gospel topics. And man, do I think about our class uh, when, I, when, I, this, when I read this quote. He says, I believe Mormonism affords an opportunity for thoughtful disciples who will not be content with merely repeating some of its truths, but will develop its truths. Then he says this, the prophet planted the germ truths, now let that one roll through your head a little bit. The germ truths of the great dispensation of the fullness of times. The disciples of Mormonism, and I think he would have counted him as part of this. The disciples of Mormonism growing discontented with the necessarily primitive methods which have hitherto prevailed in sustaining the doctrine. He says, sometimes we're not very good at explaining our doctrines. We have these primitive ways. Uh, I, th I think about the, uh, uh, the flannel boards of our past and, and some of the kind of primitive ways that we've tried to teach uh, the gospel. Um, the primitive methods which have hitherto prevailed in sustaining the doctrine will yet take profounder and broader views of the great doctrines committed to the church and departing from mere repetition. No, we don't do that, do we? Uh, we don't have gospel doctrine answers ready to go. Uh, maybe we do. Um, the great doctrines committed to this church and departing from mere repetition will cast them into new formulas. He's saying kind of push and look and dig because these doctrines are so deep and full and they don't always lend themselves to a five-minute uh, gospel doctrine answer. 
Then he says, until, uh, until they help to give to the truths a more forceful expression and carry it beyond the, this is, this is harsh, beyond the earlier and cruder stages of its development. He, he's saying that early on, it's like we had, we had these wonderful leaders of the 19th century that, that had gospel, deep gospel truths landed upon them, and they were trying to filter it through their um, rural uh, 19th century eyes and sensibilities, and sometimes they did well and sometimes they did not so well. Um, and, and we're trying to take those concepts and every, all the new information and knowledge that we have and open those and send those a little bit deeper uh, into the gospel sphere, um, which I hope is what we try and do on a regular basis with these wonderful doctrines uh, and find out that there's always a little bit more. And uh, we'll find out as we talk about over the next uh, couple of weeks where else, what other, other sources we can have to really illuminate uh, the power uh, that we have. So let's take that commission from Elder Roberts uh, to, to find a more forceful expression of what we're trying to say uh, and, and dive in basically uh, to, to these series of classes now about the promises of the fathers. We could say the covenants of the fathers. We could also say promises made to the fathers that drove everything that the Savior did, that Paul did, that Joseph Smith did, trying to somehow fulfill promises that were made. Now, why are, why are promises so important? Why are they so critical? Well, I want to take a, a, a step back for just a second. I want to talk about uh, something that I encounter on a regular basis uh, in the counseling work that I do, and that is our sense of uh, daily expectations. I know, for instance, uh, just the most mundane of things, even in driving here today, that as I drive, as I arrive at an intersection, I already have operating in my head a certain set of expectations and assumptions about what's going to happen. If I get to an intersection and the light is red, that means I'm expected to stop, and I'm also expecting that uh, those that have a green light on their side of the intersection will be driving through. Think about what happens in your expectations when you're sitting behind somebody at a light, the light turns green, the expectation is we're now going to go, and they're sitting there at their phone texting, and they don't, didn't see that the light changed. Our expectation is that you will now go, and when they have violated, uh, violated our expectations, because they're still sitting in the car looking at their phone, we're going to give them a, a little spiritual prompt with our horn to remind them that it's now time for them to go forward. We expect them to start driving. We, there's a lot of expectations that we have over a very similar stop at a traffic light. Now, uh, I've mentioned elsewhere that uh, a couple of years ago, I had a good friend of mine that got to an uh, intersection just like this. Uh, he, the light turned green. He starts to go, and somebody else violated what he expected would happen. Uh, he was broadsided by another truck uh, at an intersection 
that ended up totaling his truck and caused for him months and months of rehab, painful rehab, trying to recover from that painful accident at that intersection. Now, a few months after that, after his recovery, he and I drove through the same intersection. And I noticed really quickly that his expectations had changed. As we're driving through, I saw him take a nervous glance to the side where the phantom truck had come and piled into him months ago and was no longer there, but he was expecting it now to be there. His expectations of what he was going to do in that intersection or what might happen in that intersection had changed based on events. Now, with our expectations, part of how we order our world and we know what to plan for and part of what feels safe to us is that we can order and expect and know what's coming next. Mess with that and we're in trouble. Because now it, the unknown becomes a threat. We don't know what's coming next. And so because of that, our anxiety starts to rise a bit when we get to an unknown situation, especially if in our life, unknown situations haven't always turned out well and they've been painful. Uh, I find it uh, interesting that at this moment, as I'm seeing uh, levels of, of uh, uh, nervousness coming from the fact that we don't know what's happening next. We are, we're filled in a world now with we don't know what happens next with uh, our virus and whether there will be other shutdowns. We don't know what's coming there. What should we plan for? Is it all right to go out or not? Should we wear masks or not? How much? How much distance? Uh, I, saw, I saw a picture the other day of people lined up in a McDonald's uh, drive through and they were keeping social distance with their cars, keeping at least one car distance between us and the next car. Uh, are we supposed to do that? We don't know, but we're trying to, you know, not let the little uh, virus worms sneak into our mask and get us. Uh, but we don't know what we're doing next. And then on top of that, we have all of the uh, riots and racial discord that is coming, and we're trying to guess, what do we do? suddenly our expectations of how a world is supposed to work and function and what people are supposed to do or not do has been thrown up into the air. And when that happens, it has a rise in our anxiety. Why? Because our expectations have changed. We're now expecting that we're not going to know what to expect. That's tough. And that raises the level of threat, which levels, raises the level of anxiety. The other thing that I've noticed in, in this regard, uh, and I, I saw this uh, just recently, uh, is that sometimes uh, we will see uh, people that are going through some kind of a, a faith crisis. Uh, I saw another uh, respected uh, gentleman the other day online that is uh, very knowledgeable and very... Uh, well followed in the work that he does and he was coming out and saying boy just mormonism doesn't work for me anymore and i'm uh and i'm now finding greater joy you know in the outdoors and uh and i don't need to be in a church to uh, worship god and and he's changing um now our statistics tell us 
as people are leaving not just uh, the Church of Jesus Christ, but also leaving other faith traditions as well, the question is, what are they leaving for and to? We know, for instance, that those that are leaving uh, the LDS Church, uh, we look at, and and they're being able to follow a number of them and ask, where is it that you're going and what are you going to do? Interestingly enough, the vast majority of them aren't going to any other church. It isn't like former members of the LDS Church end up devout Catholics. They are much more likely by statistic to end up agnostic or even atheist. In other words, what they're doing is they're leaving faith altogether. Faith and a belief in God did not match what they were expecting. And because of that, they've thrown the whole thing over and trying to create a whole new tradition for them. I can still be a good person uh, even if I'm not sitting in sacrament meeting every week. And actually, that's very true. They can be. But something is is lost in, in terms of what they had expected. Now, what I have really kind of come to believe is that for most people that are leaving uh, the church, uh, it's oft, I wonder how often it's really a crisis of expectation. It's not so much a faith crisis as much as it is an expectation crisis. I expected A and B happened. I expected that this is the way God was supposed to function, and he didn't. I expected that my bishop would do this, and he did something else. I was expecting something different from Salt Lake City in response to this concern or this problem, and they did something else, and therefore not only am I disappointed, my my expectations were not met, and I'm going to go someplace where my expectations are going to be met and I'm more comfortable. I think it's a crisis of expectation. Now, what that says to me is that sometimes as parents, as church leaders, sometimes we're not very good at helping recognize what expectations are and having uh, recognized what people are actually expecting and recognizing are those reasonable or not? Are those irrational expectations or not? But in order to do it, we have to know, first of all, what expectations are. If you have kids, one of the things that we need to be aware of constantly is what do they expect from us as parents? What do they expect from a church? What do they expect from God? What do they think God should do in certain situations? And is that a reasonable expectation of what God or church should do? Now, I do believe that in order to do that, we have to ask uh, a very simple question. And this kind of my challenge, I guess, for you is, um, what exactly is it that you expect from God? Never thought about that? What do you expect? Now, you have expectations. You just may not be asking yourself. Because you'll know that you have expectations when... Uh, you're kind of upset or you're hurt or you're feeling betrayed or something. You expected something and your body and your emotions tell you it didn't happen. 
So I think it's worth asking, what do you expect from God? What do you expect from the Lord? What do you expect Him to do? How do you expect Him to handle adversity or crisis when you're out of a job? What are you expecting from heaven or not? What do you expect that God will do in the future? Are you expecting uh, a great apocalypse and, and the Savior coming from the clouds? Or you think that's maybe a little outdated? What do you expect? Uh, and then, now we, when we're going to, uh, the whole breadth of this class now for however many months this takes us is going to be taking a look at what God wants us to expect, what God thinks we should expect from deity, from heaven from a relationship with him. Now, what goes hand in hand with that, obviously, is what do you expect from prophets? What do you expect from your church leaders? Do you expect something from church leaders now that maybe in the 1940s or the 1840s they would have expected? Let me give you a quick example. When when President Nelson became prophet, we expected that not a lot of things would change. In fact, I read uh, articles written to say, well, he's old, he is traditional, uh, don't expect a lot of change from this new prophet. The first thing that he did was blow us away with changes. And the next conference, more changes. He has now changed our expectation to, I believe, quite honestly, that there were some that were a little disappointed in this last April conference that there weren't more changes. Because in a church that has always changed very slowly, here's, here's a, a prophet that has trained us to expect changes. And when they don't happen, or they're not wow type prophets, we go, or uh, uh, moments, we just say, well, we were kind of expecting a little bit more because that's what he does our expectations of what a prophet may do uh, have altered to the point where you don't want to miss general conference because you may miss what the next big thing is going to be that's going to come from this prophet. We expect changes from him. So in general, what do you expect from prophets? I know, the, I know the old joke about saying we don't expect our prophets to be perfect but we're upset when they are imperfect. Uh, in the same way that Catholics uh, say that their Pope should be infallible, but they don't expect that he really is. Well, in our sense and our understanding of prophets, how much space do we give them to be human? Do we expect that from them? Do we expect that their own personality and their style will make its way into church policy and influence it during their administration? Is that okay? Is that what we expect from prophets to lead from what they are comfortable with and what their strengths are? Is that okay? I just think those are questions that we need to be asking so that we can sort out our own expectations. I believe that a lot of the people that I have talked to that have left the church fully expected something else from their prophets. And grew up believing that and I think oftentimes what they were expecting was an irrational a bit of an irrational setup 
because a prophet or the church was never going to meet their level of expectation. Could not happen. And they were going to be disappointed at some point. Now, so why is all this expectation so critical then to this? Well, I think, I think we can actually put it into a, uh, uh, a way of, of saying, I think it has to do an awful lot with developing trust. Trust is a very fragile thing. Uh, trust is not something that automatically uh, clicks on and off. And if we have been taught not to trust, we have a difficult time with it. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, a couple of days ago, I had gone to uh, a store to, to pick up some things. And as I was walking out, I was stopped by a man uh, who, who said, I was watching you and I need to ask something. Uh, and, and what he basically was saying was, uh, I'm pretty close to homeless, but I'm a construction guy. I've been doing a job for somebody. I have a chance to earn about $200, uh, but we spilled the only pint of paint I had. And I need another pint of paint and I can't afford another pint of paint. <laughs> could you help me get another pint of paint? And he showed me the, the color he was needing and he wasn't asking for me to just give him money. He just needed to get a pint of paint. And I said, sure, let me. And so we went back into the, the home store and uh, got re and started looking at the paint and picking it out and everything. And then I realized I'd left my wallet in the car. And I, you know, I check and it's not here. And so I turned to him and I said, okay, I've got to go back. Then we went out to the parking lot. My wallet is in the car. I don't have a, my, my money with me. And, and this man looked at me and he said, it's okay if you really don't want to help. Because I can probably find somebody else. And I said, no, I'm, that's not who I am. I want to be able to help. But my wallet's in the car. And he said, it really would be okay if you don't want to do this. And I said, no, I want to do this. And he says, are you coming back? And I said, yes, I'm coming back. Um, and, and let me translate what he was saying. People leave me. People don't follow through on what I need. I've learned not to trust people. In fact, in his case, he says, yes, I've done time uh, in prison, and, and he learned never trust anybody. So, so when, I, when I went out and I got my wallet and I came back into the store and he was picking out the paint, noticeable look of relief on his face that somebody had come through, somebody had fulfilled a promise for him. But for him, trust was something that had been long gone uh, in his life. Now... Generally, when, when I'm talking to somebody that has had trust violated, they say, how do I learn to trust again? And there's a very simple formula that, I, that I've learned to, to work off of, and it is it's this, that trust or faith equals time plus consistency. There's just no way to, to get past the, the fact that if our trust has been hurt, if we have been betrayed, we can't just immediately switch the trust back on again. It's going to take time and it's going to take, take consistency. 
And, it, and it's just one of those things that has to unfold over time. Now, when we start talking about the development of uh, faith in a being that we can't see, then in, in some very real ways, faith, I think, is God trust. Faith is, a t- is the development of an expectation of what deity will do for us over time. And we have to know and have to find ways to trust God, that God will do the things that he said that he would. Can you see where we're heading with the promises? Because <laughs> uh, that, that's kind of the idea here. Now, the dealings and, and promises of God. How do we know how God works? How do we know what he does and how he does it? Well, we have a record of the dealings and promises of God uh, to people. And we call that the scriptures. But let me just take just a second and, and talk about the Hebrew Bible for a second because when we start going to the promises of the fathers we're going to be deep in the patriarchs and the prophets anciently. anciently. How did we get uh, the Old Testament that we've got for instance? Well, I want to put this on a timeline because there's a lot of this that we don't know completely and scholars are doing a great job of trying to piece together how this works. Let me give you an idea of kind of I think what uh, kind of the common consensus among uh, LDS uh, biblical scholars are at the moment on this. Um, it's a belief that at some point there was a loose canon, a loose connect- collection of prophetic writings in ancient Israel. From scrolls, from brass plates, there was just kind of an unorganized stack of writings. We don't know what it looked like. We don't know how much there was. Uh, but writings from the prophets and writings from the patriarchs. Now what we do know for sure is that um, in about 630 BC and think about Lehi leaving around 600 BC Uh, that there was a massive cultural and scriptural purging and editing uh, by King Josiah. He's going to come in, this is called the Josiah Purge, Um, and they're going to, in in the process of trying to get people to come back to the scriptures, they're going to rewrite and edit and change the culture. Um, For instance, a topic we'll talk about another time, we know that from other writings that prior to the time of Josiah that there was uh, a worship of the god El and that the god El had a, uh, a, a goddess uh, consort, Asherah. She was the embodiment of the tree of life. And we know archaeologically we're finding all kinds of archaeological evidence of Asherah shrines, and this is not Baal worship. This is this is uh, Jewish worship, Israelite worship of what they call the goddess of heaven. This Ashi- these Asherah shrines, we know that they would bake cakes to her. They called her the queen of heaven, 
and we know that uh, they would do libations, <coughs> which was the pouring of oil over pillars dedicated to her. And we have those pillars and we have those shrines that are being uncovered. In the process of the purging by King Josiah, all of that was destroyed. All of that was purged from the writings and the shrines were destroyed. Uh, and, 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 and part of what they did then was double down in terms of saying there is no more uh, inspired prophetic writings. There's only there are scriptural writings. Uh, there, there are no more prophets doing those kind of things. Um, and there's only this and there's only the one God, Yahweh, Jehovah, and anything that would refer to anything else other than Yahweh had been purged out. That, there, there, there's quite a cleansing that is going to happen right here in 630 B.C. And notice it's going to happen in Lehi's time. Lehi saw this, which, again, conversation for another time. When Lehi is going to start receiving dreams and visions, his sons... Laman and Lemuel, who would have been Deuteronomists, uh, believers in the purging and by, by King Josiah, rise up in fear about saying it's a false prophet because that's not, what, that's not what we believe now. That purging comes in 630 B.C. And the editing of scripture and the editing of scrolls is removing a lot of things. Um, like what? Well, as we're going to talk about it as we go along... Things disappeared out of the Josiah purge. Things like Melchizedek and Melchizedek City and Enoch and Enoch's writings. Uh, and we, lose, we start losing all of these things that were out there. And the writings of Zenos and Zenic that we get in the brass plates didn't make the purge. Okay, So there's this great purging that's going on. And then what's going to happen here is that in 587, Jerusalem will be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed, and the people will go off into exile in Babylon. Now, we know that those Jewish scribes who had watched the city destroyed and the temple destroyed and their culture gone and their people scattered in a way to try and unify them, now start the process. And, and this is where we believe they actually wrote the Old Testament. Genesis is finally written down. Exodus is finally written down so that people can know where they came from because all of that had been destroyed. Now keep in mind, while they're doing this, and they're in the process then of trying to uh, organize and write the Old Testament, they're working from purged, edited documents by, from Josiah's time. They're simply going to take what they have and try and put it together so that sometime the, the people will get a chance to read and know what was lost. So that's why you're going to see a great emphasis in the writings of King David, yes, there was a King David, and he was great, and he wiped out whole cities, and Saul was great, and you know, and and there's enough of a kind of an over-the-top stuff that a lot of scholars have wondered if there was even a King David, because these scribes were so heavily trying to say, yes, Israel was great once, 
and it was a marvelous place and we had great kings and we're just they can, these are kings that almost can't do any wrong uh, because they're trying to in, if you look at what they're doing now from that moment then uh, the other thing ultimately that you will see then uh, is that when they come back out of exile 70 years later under Zerubbabel and they're going to try and kind of rebuild a shabby sort of temple it's not very big they're going to bring back with them some of the writings now and and what will happen within the next uh, uh, couple of centuries after that after they get back they're going to take those writings that were written in Babylon they're going to combine with them the exile writings that came from people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel and, and Malachi and Joel that weren't part of the edited things that Josiah did. So we get this kind of this edited version of about two-thirds of the Old Testament and then we get all of these prophets added to it and all of that was put written up by 70 scholars in Alexandria and they created the Greek Septuagint um, to put all of that together and that's it's this this is what Paul and and everybody was working off of along with the Hebrew Bible or the Septuagint um, that this best put together and what were they after well they wanted to have a copy of what the promises made to the fathers. Will Israel come back? Will Israel be great? Have we survived? What will it look like in the future? What did God want for us? And what promises did he make about what our future may look like? Is there a Messiah? At what point will somebody come in and remove the overlords and bring back the great kingdom of Israel? Now, that's, the, that's what they were looking for. What was missing, if we go back even to Laman and Lemuel, when they're back in 600 BC, they are, they are in the wilderness with their father. And in 1 Nephi 2, it says uh, one of the beliefs that they had about Jerusalem, simply based on the edited scrolls that they were receiving, writings coming from Josiah, just two decades earlier, or yeah, two decades earlier. Neither did they, Laman and Lemuel, believe that Jerusalem, that great city, could be destroyed according to the works of the prophets. We know about King Zedekiah. We know about, that there have been times that uh, God has, uh, that, that, for instance, with Hezekiah, uh, that God sent an angel and wiped out armies. Israel, Jerusalem can't be destroyed. Nephi, you're crazy. Uh, Lehi is prophesying craziness. Jerusalem's not going to be destroyed. It can't be destroyed. And, and Nephi is going to tell us, and they, Laman and Lemuel, were like unto the Jews that were at Jerusalem. That's what they believed. And they were counting on promises that they had read suggesting that fact. Uh, let me give you one other group that was kind of surprised and, and they're actually contemporaries. I believe that some of Laman and Lemuel's friends, people that Lehi knew, people that Nephi knew, were hauled off captive 
to Babylon. Where did they camp them? At, at first, they were camped around the rivers outside the gates of Babylon, the great lion gate that was there that they could look up and see, but they weren't allowed into the city. They were just refugees camped out on the river. And we get this from Psalms 137 that lays it out pretty clearly what they were experiencing. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. We had expected one thing and something else has occurred. When we remembered Zion, on the, will, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. They wanted to learn something from these refugee Israelites out on the riverbanks. And they say, we weep when we remember Zion. We weren't supposed to be here. This is not how it's supposed to work. How long we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. We expected Jerusalem could never be destroyed, and it was, based on what information we had. That's a, a painful betrayal, and for some of those, because they were in exile for 70 years, Many of the older ones of them would never go back, would never see Jerusalem again. Interestingly enough, some of the younger ones, when they could go back to Jerusalem, decided to stay in Babylon. And afterwards, we get the Babylonian Torah uh, because there were a lot of Jews that decided that the hanging gardens of Babylon were a little nicer than what they were seeing in, uh, near the Dead Sea. Um, but for them, this moment was a devastating moment then we weep for Zion because of what we expected. Now, from that, here, here's, here's the question that we're going to ask uh, leading into the next uh, few weeks. Where are the promises of God? Where exactly are these promises that might have been edited out, might have uh, things like uh, the city of Enoch and Melchizedek. Where are those promises of what might happen when a city is one heart and one mind? What are the plain and precious truths that we're missing? That were somehow taken out by Josiah, by editing even in Babylon. Where are those promises? How do we find those? Because if we're going to have the kind of faith that we need in God, we need to know all of the promises of the fathers and where they're available uh, to us. Well, that begins to be uh, a, a little bit evident, doesn't it? Uh, that's why our, our search for the promises of the fathers is going to take us through the Old Testament to find those places that we can find them. And then it's going to take us to places like the Pearl of Great Price, where the, these kind of promises were given to uh, prophets to know what it is that God intended for them. 
Now, so for instance, the Book of Mormon actually is going to tell, and Nephi is going to tell us, that to the scattered remnant of Israel that they were going to run into uh, scattered in the new world. First uh, Nephi 13 says, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that they did prosper in the land. Who? The Gentiles did. And I beheld a book, and it was carried forth among them. Oh, they had a book. Uh, we know this, right? It's the Christian Bible because it has the promises in it, both for the Gentiles and for the and Israelites, wherever they were looking for that. Okay. And the angel said, Knowest thou the meaning of the book? And he says, No, you know, we're uh, the he, uh, no, angel, the, the Bible hasn't been written yet. <laughs> so we haven't seen this version yet. Uh, and I said, I know not. I got this brass plate thing, and that's as close as I can find to scriptures. And he said, It proceedeth out of the mouth of a Jew. <laughs> for those. For those Catholic monks, for those uh, Puritans that were traveling to the New World, they believed they were carrying a Christian Bible. The angel is telling Nephi back then, back then, it's a Jewish book. And I, Nephi, beheld it, and he said unto me, that the book thou beholdest is a record of the Jews uh, which contains the covenants say, promises the covenants of the Lord which he made unto who? the house of Israel this is it contains the promises of the fathers and it contains many not all it contains many of the prophecies of the holy prophets. It's a Jewish book with Jewish promises. When we were going through the writings of Paul, it became, Paul tried to emphasize over and over and over and over. And the book of Romans is full of this language. And he says, the promises were made to Israel and are going to be extended to Gentiles and they're going to be brought into all the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Later on, and again, this class <coughs> that we're going to get into, uh, there was a sense among, uh, in the Reformation, uh, the, uh, something called supersessionism. And that was the belief that the Christian church had become the heirs of all the the house of Israel because the Jews had forfeited that right by killing Jesus. So they were now the heirs of the, the house of Israel. That's why it is that kings in Israel or kings in, in England were going to be uh, ordained, set apart on the stone of Skun, <laughs> the Scottish rock, which was actually believed to be Jacob's pillar. Saying that English kings were the descendants of King David. That was certainly the, the belief in, in, in Ireland as well, that they were going to be descendants of King David. We have replaced the Jews. 
as the covenant people. And, and what these promises of the Bible say is, no, these are promises made to Israel. And Paul is saying to the Gentiles, come now, uh, foreigners, and fe- you are fellow citizens with the saints. You have joined Israel, not something separate. So these promises are contained in the Old Testament. We're going to find them contained uh, in the Pearl of Great Price, those precious truths that were left out in the editing, purging process uh, along the way. And ultimately, uh, the Savior is then going to say uh, to Malachi at the end of all of this, read these promises. And then he's going to use an interesting term. He's going to say, Prove me herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. Prove me in what? Prove me as I show to you I keep my promises. I will prove to you so that you can have faith in me that I do what I say I do. And you need to know the promises that I have made way back when because you're gonna, we're going to watch the fulfillment of that now. That's our expectation, that we worship a God who keeps his promises, who makes them, has the prophets record them, so that you can watch them fulfilled. That's one of the reasons why it is when the Savior comes to the Nephites and he says, let me see your records. And they go, well, here's the records. And he says, you left some things out. Didn't, didn't Samuel, the Lamanite, record a bunch of promises? I need you to write them down so that you can see that those were fulfilled and so that ultimately they'll have them later. I, let me quote you some Isaiah. And he, uh, here's some more Isaiah. Write those down. Why? Because they're full of promises that shows what I do. And let me quote you Malachi 3 and 4 so that you can see where I'm saying, prove me. He's not afraid to say, prove me. See what I do. Okay, so in conclusion, let me me just finish with this. Um, When he says, prove me, I think we have to then Uh, recognize that our trust, our faith in God is built on whether he meets our, our daily expectations of deity. Does he do what he says he does and will he do that for us? Is he doing what a loving God does? So I believe that through the writings of his prophets, he has carefully and deliberately left a clear record uh, of his his promises and their fulfillment. He wants us to know, he wants you to see where they actually were fulfilled. Now sometimes it's like, great things are going to happen. I will bless you. The Savior will come in the meridian of time to the Nephites. That's But he also makes promises and says, and if you don't keep my commandments, if you kill my poor, if you stone the prophets, your city goes away. I will tell you, and then it will happen. So sometimes his promises are very much um, 
that he follows through also on the consequences of that. So what he's really saying to then prove me and he's inviting us to go find his promises. Brothers and sisters, I believe that as we take a look at the promises and covenants made to the fathers, we're going to find real salience in how God works and why he does what he does and what he wants to, us to do and what he's willing to do for us. That process of grace is what he will do and what he expects of us. And in that process, then we find God and we prove him herewith. I bear you my testimony on this day that he intends for us to have all of that. And I, and I bear you that witness and I do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.